Welcome to episode number 69 of the Food as Medicine show with Dr. Ann, the place to be for real talk with real people and real results so you can heal yourself naturally. I'm your host, Dr. Ann, and I'm a board-certified pharmacist and functional medicine practitioner who finds and fixes the root cause of chronic conditions, specializing in gut health. If you need help with your nutrition, your food sensitivities, and healing your gut, you can book an appointment with me at drann.com slash work. And Anne is spelled A-N-H as in healthy. Hey there, and I hope your Monday in March is off to a great start. This week, I've been reflecting on how far this podcast and how far I've come in the last year because March 10th marks the 10 or no, the one year anniversary of having the podcast be approved on iTunes. And I couldn't have imagined in my wildest dreams how many people all over the world would be listening as well as how different my life is now compared to one year ago. So I've been working behind the scenes to bring forth some new and exciting changes to the podcast and the Food as Medicine community, which I plan to be announcing on March 10th, which is Thursday, so stay tuned. Now, before we get to the episode, I want to let you know that the opinions expressed on this show may not represent my opinions, and the show is for general information only, not a substitute for medical care. So prior to beginning any new health program, I recommend that you consult with a qualified health professional. In today's episode, I chat with Dr. Tom O'Brien, who, in my opinion, is one of the most well-read and experienced practitioners when it comes to gluten sensitivity and to celiac disease. He's been featured on the news practically everywhere, and what I love about his teaching style is that he explains things in such a very easy-to-understand way. In addition to this wonderful interview that we had, Dr. Tom has also put together a Gluten Truth Discovery Pack, which features Dr. Jeffrey Bland and Dr. Deanna Minnick, bringing together some blockbuster experts who will discuss the scientific facts about gluten sensitivity, as well as ancient grains versus modern grains, and why they are affected, and why we are affected. Uh, plus, you'll get three of Dr. Tom's favorite education articles that he wrote discussing how gluten may be affecting your life. Now, if that wasn't enough, Dr. Tom also is giving you $10 cash to use in the store at thedoctor.com. So make sure you grab this Gluten Truth Discovery Pack, which can be found at thedoctor.com slash gluten truth. The doctor is the and then drdr.com slash gluten truth. Also, all the links mentioned and resources mentioned will also be found at drann.com slash 069. Now, in today's episode... With Dr. Tom, we talk about the gluten sensitivity continuum and what percentage of people actually have gluten sensitivity, why a gluten sensitivity can manifest as so many health conditions and symptoms, whether you can be gluten sensitive despite not having any symptoms, what lab tests he recommends to assess if you have gluten sensitivity, whether the gluten-free diet is for everyone, some problems with the gluten-free diet and how to overcome them, whether ancient grains are okay to eat, and much more. All right, let's go chat with Dr. Tom. You welcome Dr. Tom to the show. Thank you, Dr. Ann. Thank you so much. That was a really nice introduction. Thank you. Thank you. So, you know, I, you know, I am very familiar with your story because I kind of stalk you. But um, if people don't know who you are, you know, can you share with us how you got into kind of being the gluten expert? Um, you know, why are you so passionate about it? And, you know, how did you get to where you are today with doing the summit and specializing in gluten sensitivity? Sure, sure. Um, it started uh, 36 years ago when my 
wife and I, my ex and I, could not get pregnant. And I was an intern at the time, and I called the seven most famous doctors I'd ever heard of, holistic doctors, and I asked them, what do you do with infertility? They all told me what they do, and I wrote it all down, and I put a program together. We were pregnant in six weeks. Hmm. My neighbors in married housing, we lived on campus at the time, asked if I'd work with them. They had been through artificial insemination, and nothing had worked for them. And I said, well, you know, I don't think it's going to harm you in any way. Okay, I'm happy to help if I can. She, they were pregnant in three months. Hmm. And so by the time I came out into practice, I was hot to trot to help everyone, every couple get pregnant who was having a hard time getting pregnant. And as a result of that, um, uh, I worked with uh, hundreds of couples and women with uh, uh, hormone imbalances, mis recurrent miscarriages, things like that. And there's no shotgun approach um, to fixing any condition. Uh, it really needs to be specific to the person. However, there are some common imbalances that may occur. And that was the case with hormone imbalances or with infertility issues or recurrent miscarriages is that my experience was, and there's not an all or an every for very much in life, but this is an all, my clinical experience. Every person that had these complaints had some food sensitivities as part of their problem. And um, as we know, all degenerative diseases are diseases of inflammation at the cellular level, it's always inflammation. So the rule of thumb that I came up with is stop throwing gasoline on the fire. <laughs> Makes sense. <Right? laughs> and so, and, and people would say, well, what is it? And I said, I don't know. Let's find out. Let's find out what foods you're sensitive to. And so it's not that the food makes you sick when you eat it. For most people, they can't tell the fire that's going on inside, uh, inside their bodies until you've killed off enough because of the inflammation killing off cells and you have to hit a threshold of cells that are no longer working properly and then you start to get symptoms. First they're minor symptoms and then as you keep throwing gasoline in the fire the symptoms get a little larger, a little larger, then they become obvious and then eventually you go to a doctor who's not likely is going to identify that you're throwing gasoline in the fire and so you get some kind of therapy, some kind of uh, pharmaceutical recommendation or some something to deal with the symptoms, which is helpful at times, but you're still throwing gasoline on the fire. Mm. And what we found out, the main culprit, uh, there, there are many, but the main food sensitivity that seemed to have the greatest impact on people was a sensitivity to gluten. Mm -hmm. it, it was the most common and the most um, impactful that it may manifest as recurrent seizures and no, no other symptoms. It may manifest as rheumatoid arthritis with no other symptoms. It may manifest as infertility with no other symptoms. And you don't feel when you're infertile. No. <laughs> you, you don't feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. So um, over the years, I have read um, probably 
I don't know, three or 4,000 research articles now. I, my library is very extensive. I just keep reading all the time. I'm a geek. You know, mm -hmm. I read stuff. I love reading this stuff. And then sharing the information. And so I've been traveling and teaching uh, extensively since 2004. And uh, we now have practitioners all over the world that are part of my certified gluten practitioner program. And they understand the big picture. They understand how to look at this. So it's a 12-hour online training program that people can take. And if anyone's interested, you can find it at um, uh, certifiedglutenpractitioner.com or at thedr.com. There will be a link there. But we train doctors and healthcare practitioners and health coaches and nutritionists. I don't care what your degree is, um, as if you're working with people to help them be healthier, you just need to know this basic information. And as you learn the, I'll give you one example that I've been using for the last, oh, eight months or so, um, introducing my presentations to doctors. I lectured last weekend at a pharmaceutical conference, and I started with this also. A three-and-a-half-year-old child was diagnosed with celiac disease, and that's when you have a sensitivity to gluten that's affecting your intestines. Mm -hmm. And in order to get the diagnosis, you have to put a tube down the throat and snip out a little piece of the tissue in the intestines, and the doctors look at it under a microscope. And in a three-and-a-half-year-old, they put the child under a general anesthetic. And the child had a reaction to the general anesthetic, and... Um, uh, it was fine, but still was sick. And, and the doctor who the endoscopy said, you know, there's something wrong with your daughter's eye. You should take her to an ophthalmologist. So the parents went to an ophthalmologist two weeks after the uh, test uh, that confirmed celiac disease. And the ophthalmologist found that this had a tumor on her eye. And you see the picture in the research article where they have the child look down and then they lift the eyelid up and you see this ugly, mucousy, spider vein-like tumor on the surface of the eye. They thought it was Kaposi's sarcoma, which comes from HIV, mm. because mom was positive for HIV. But the child's blood work was not positive for HIV. So they said, what is this? So they wanted to do a biopsy of the tumor. But in order to do a biopsy of the tumor, they would have had to put the child under a general anesthetic. And the parents said, no, 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 no. Our child was under a general two weeks ago, and she's still recovering. We'll wait a couple of weeks, and then we'll come back and do it. But the doctors took a picture of the tumor. One week later, the parents come back and they schedule for the general and to look um, to take a, a biopsy of the eye uh, tumor. And so the doctors look at the tumor beforehand and say, whoa, what's this? And they show a picture in the research article, the tumor was smaller in a week. Hmm. What's this? So the parents decided not to do the biopsy. They, they had put the child on a gluten-free diet as soon as the child was diagnosed with celiac disease. So the next picture you see is two months later, and the tumor's gone, hmm. completely gone. And the ophthalmologists wrote in the journal Ophthalmology, they said, we don't understand what this is because we didn't do the biopsy, but certainly it appears that this tumor in the eye was an autoimmune reaction 
to celiac disease. And when the child went on a gluten-free diet, the tumor completely went away. And nine months later, the tumor was still gone. So I start my presentations with that study. And all the doctors in the room sit there with their jaw dropped. <laughs> you know, because you see the pictures and you see this ugly tumor. And then one week later, it's less. And two months later, it's gone. They say, what is, how did this happen? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't compute, mm. let alone that it's from a food sensitivity. So I start there because I then emphasize that if you pull on a chain, the chain always breaks at the weakest link. It's at one end, the middle, the other end. It's your heart, your brain, your liver, your kidney, your eye. Wherever your weak link is, if you pull on the chain, that's where the link's going to break. So if you keep throwing gasoline on the fire in your body, wherever your genetic weak link is, that's where the chain is likely to break, and that's the symptoms you will get from a gluten sensitivity. Mm -hmm. That's why the studies are very clear, reversing rheumatoid arthritis, reversing lupus, reversing tumors in the eye, skin lesions, um, attention deficit, autism, um, Alzheimer's. There's a couple of papers on reversing Alzheimer's, unbelievably, uh, that the list goes on and on and on, that if you have a sensitivity to gluten, it will manifest wherever your weak link is. Sure. Yeah, that's fantastic because, you know, I think a lot of people um, don't understand why is it that gluten sensitivity can have such a wide reaching um, influence or impact on all these different symptoms and, and conditions. So as far as sensitivity goes, I know you, I've heard you speak about the continuum of sensitivity, right? Where, you know, where do you find most people fall on this continuum? Because um, I think most practitioners will think, oh, either you are celiac or you're not, and there's nothing in between. Um, That's a really good question. That's a really good question. Um, what your listeners need to know is, um, uh, I should say it differently, if your listeners know this, they'll understand why there will be some confusion when they talk to their doctors. Mm. That the research, there's over 19,000 studies on celiac disease and a sensitivity to gluten causing celiac disease, 19,000 studies. There's maybe 3,000 on non-celiac gluten sensitivity. I'm just making up the number. I actually don't, I haven't counted, you know. There's a bunch, but it's nowhere near like for celiac disease. So doctors were trained that if you have a problem with gluten, it's celiac disease. And if you don't have celiac disease, you don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. That was the historic understanding of the condition. Now we know that the term is a gluten-related disorder. Actually, it should be a wheat-related disorder. So that's the big kahuna term at the top. If you have the gene, and if it manifests in your intestines, it's celiac disease. If it manifests in your brain, it might be attention deficit. If it manifests in your um, joints, it might be rheumatoid arthritis. So it just depends on where the gluten sensitivity will manifest, where the weak link in the chain is as to, as to what symptoms you get and what diagnosis you get. Celiac disease is very important to rule out if you have that, if you have symptoms that suggest that, but that's only one manifestation. And the numbers say in the U.S., it's about one out of 100 
that will have celiac disease. If you have a family member diagnosed, it's one out of five. So it's a whole different ballgame if you have a family member diagnosed. But one out of 100 in general. Well, the big kahuna term, a wheat-related disorder, is somewhere around 60 out of 100. Somewhere, be, depending on what study you read and what clinicians you talk to, it's somewhere between 35 or 40 to 60 out of 100 people have a wheat-related disorder. Now, how can it be such a high number? Mm. Harvard published a study last year that showed us, and it was Holland and his team at Harvard, that no human can digest gluten completely. No human. No one. Whether you get symptoms or not just depends on when the link of your chain breaks, right? But it's pulling on the chain for everyone. It causes something called intestinal permeability or the leaky gut. For every human that eats it, within five minutes of eating it, you get a leaky gut. Now, some of us have heard that we have a whole new body every seven years. You know, every cell in your body regenerates. Some really quick, some really slow, really slow. But the fastest growing cells in the body are the inside lining of your intestines. Every three to seven days, you have a whole new lining to your gut. So you eat wheat and you tear the lining to your gut. That's called intestinal permeability, but it heals. So you have a sandwich for lunch, you tear the lining of your gut, but it heals. You have pasta for dinner, you tear the lining of your gut, but it heals. You have croutons on your salad, you tear the lining of your gut, but it heals. A cookie, you tear the lining of your gut, but it heals. Day after day after week after month after year after year, until one day you've worn the system out, you don't heal from those tears that occurs for everyone. You don't heal anymore. Now you get the leaky gut. It's called pathogenic intestinal permeability. It doesn't go away. When that happens, think of food like a raspberry. If you look at a raspberry, all the parts look the same, right? <laughs> yes. Digestion is breaking down the food into each little part of the raspberry. Smaller and smaller and smaller little parts until you've just got those little, little bulbs of, you know, the surface of the raspberry. Really, really small parts. Now, the inside of your intestines are lined with a cheesecloth. So when you eat food, let's say you eat meat, which is kind of tough to digest. It takes a while to digest it, right? Mm -hmm. When you eat meat and it gets down into the small intestine, it's got to be broken down into these really small little parts to get through the cheesecloth to get into the bloodstream. It gets broken down into what are called amino acids. They're the building blocks that we make new bone cells and muscle cells and all that from. But you can't take, you know, it's like a, a, a semi-truck that get, pulls up to a construction site and there's a whole truckload of two-by-fours all wrapped up there on the truck. That's not going to help anything. You got to take the, the wires off of the two-by-fours so that the workers can take one two-by-four at a time and build the house, Right. Mm -hmm. That's how it is with proteins. When we eat proteins, you got to break them down into parts that can be used. So the cheesecloth doesn't let bigger parts get through. It's got those parts, the molecule, the beef molecules have to go further down the intestines to be broken down smaller and smaller and smaller until they're small enough. And then they go right through the walls of the intestines. That's one reason why your intestines are 20 feet long and wind around inside your abdomen. You need a lot of time to break down some of these foods, right? Mm -hmm. 
But what happens when you eat wheat or other foods that you're sensitive to again and again and again and again, and you finally get the tears in the cheesecloth that don't heal, now bigger clumps of that food that is being broken down in the intestines, bigger clumps of that food get through the tears in the cheesecloth into the bloodstream before they should be able to get through into the bloodstream. Those are called macromolecules, big molecules. Now your immune system that's just trying to protect you sees what's in the bloodstream and says, whoa, what's this? This is not two by fours or drywall or bricks, something that I can make a house out of, make bone cells out of or muscle cells. I better fight this. And now you make antibodies to beef. Or if it's broccoli molecules, you make antibodies to broccoli. Now you're allergic to broccoli. And these are the folks who do a blood test, look at 90 different foods that, to see if they're sensitive, and they come back sensitive to 15 or 20 different foods, and it's the foods they eat, oh my God, that's what I eat every day. Well, of course it is. Of course it is, because your body's trying to protect you from these macromolecules that shouldn't have gotten in there, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not that the food's bad for you, it's that you've got tears in the cheesecloth because there's one or two fat, two, one or two foods that really are bad for you. And the most common one is gluten. So that's kind of the mechanism of how people get sick is that you eat foods, uh, macromolecules get through the tears in the cheesecloth, your body makes antibodies to those foods, they're circulating in the bloodstream, they cause inflammation throughout your body, and wherever your weak link is, that's where you're going to eventually get the symptoms. Perfect. So, you know, the picture, you're starting to paint that picture so people can understand how all this fits together. So as far as um, testing goes, you know, some people, um, you know, if they have symptoms, they they can pretty much say, you know, I have a gluten sensitivity, I probably have a leaky gut. Um, For other people who might not have symptoms, like you were saying, if you're infertile, you don't really necessarily have symptoms. What kind of tests do you prefer um, to have people see whether or not they have a leaky gut or a gluten sensitivity? Oh, that's a really good question. Uh, And your listeners really want to hear this. Uh, Every, um, I'm going to use the wheat, the proteins of wheat, gluten, now to talk specifically about how do you test for it. So for this example, I'm now going to use the example of a pearl necklace. Instead of the raspberry, I'm going to use a pearl necklace. Now, hydrochloric acid that your stomach makes undoes the clasp of the pearl necklace. Now you have a string of pearls. And our digestive enzymes act as scissors to cut each pearl off of the pearl necklace. Each pearl is called an amino acid. Now those amino acids can go right through the cheesecloth into the bloodstream and be used to make new bone cells or muscle cells or nerve hormones called neurotransmitters whatever our body needs, uh, the amino acids are the raw material to do that. The problem with wheat is that no human can break down the proteins of wheat, the gluten and the other proteins, into each little pearl of the pearl necklace. The best we can do is break it into clumps of pearls. And there's a 33 pearl clump, a 17 pearl clump, 11 pearl clump, these big clumps of pearls. Every laboratory in the world, when they check for gluten sensitivity, checks for the 33 pearl clump called alpha glidin. Everyone in the world, everyone. 
but there are over 60 different clumps of pearls of the pearl necklace from gluten that may cause an immune reaction. Over 60, 62. Why are we only testing one? Hmm. The article started coming out back in 1999 asking that question. Why are we only testing one? Look, there are many different clumps of pearls of the pearl necklace that could be a problem. So if you have a sensitivity to alpha-gliadin, the 33 pearl, the blood test will come back positive, you got a problem. But if the blood test comes back negative, it doesn't mean you don't have a problem with gluten. It means you don't have a problem with the 33 pearl clump from poorly digested gluten. You may have a problem to the 11 or to the 9 or the 17, but no one checks. A laboratory opened four years ago called Cyrex Lab, C-Y-R-E-X, and they look at the top 10 clumps of the pearl necklace. So you're much more likely to get a positive if you have the problem. You're much more likely to identify it if you look at a lab that's looking at more than just one clump of the pearl necklace. So, and on my website, there's a handout called The Conundrum of gluten sensitivity, that's at the dr.com. You can go there, you know, you get the handout. And what you will learn there, this is a handout I wrote for you to take to your doctor. And you show it to your doctor, say, would you read this please? I read this, this makes sense to me, would you read it? And it's, it's one and a half pages, it's not long at all. And they'll read it, and I've got the studies there to reference as to there's many clumps to the pearl necklace of gluten and Every laboratory is only checking one. Here's a lab that looks at more than one. Here's this, the address for that lab and the phone number and the URL. And doc, get, get an account with this lab and use this test. Try this test. You'll be very happy that you did. So that your listeners can take some action and have a more comprehensive test done. Because what happens for so many people is that they get a blood test done to see if they have a problem with gluten, it comes back negative, but if they stop eating gluten, they feel better. Mm. Well, how is that possible? It's the test. The test wasn't comprehensive enough, right? So this is the way to help ensure that you're getting more accurate results. Sure. So then if the test, the Cyrex test is, is a better test um, because it tests for more um, immuno acid chains, it, you know, is there, is there a, a, it's a standard of care or a golden standard where maybe they can do an, an elimination diet um, and then know that they have gluten sensitivity for sure? Or is there one where you can know where besides just the 10, they can capture more of the 62 perhaps? Um, That's a good question. Um, uh, if you stop eating a food and you feel better, well, you think? <laughs> exactly. Okay. I mean, you know, you know it's, it's not rocket science. <laughs> uh, uh, the problem is that so many of the manifestations of a sensitivity to wheat are not symptoms that you feel when you eat the wheat. Mm -hmm. For example, in my practice, I looked at 316 consecutive patients from the ages of 2 to 90. Everyone got the same blood test, very comprehensive blood test. And over 60% of those people had elevated antibodies to one of the 
clumps of the pearl necklace of wheat, over 60% of them. If they had elevated antibodies to wheat, whichever one they had, 26% of those people also had elevated antibodies to their cerebellum. The cerebellum is an area of the brain that controls how your muscles work. It's the main reason why older people don't walk with grace anymore. They have to hold onto a rail when they walk downstairs. And it's not their muscles, it's that their brain's not controlling their muscles because their cerebellum has been attacked for 20, 30, 40 years and slowly being killed off, slowly being killed off, slowly being killed off until they don't have enough functioning brain left in the cerebellum to give your body balance and grace. And the pro at 26% of the people with a sensitivity to gluten. Now the problem is you don't feel when you have elevated antibodies to your cerebellum. You don't feel when you have elevated antibodies to your thyroid. You don't feel if you have elevated antibodies to your joints until you have so much inflammation, your joints are swollen, then you feel it, right? Hmm. So doing an elimination diet is a very good concept but you cannot use it as the slam dunk authenticating test of choice. You really have to do the blood test. So if you do an elimination diet and you feel better, great, now you know. If you do an elimination diet, you don't notice a difference, it doesn't mean it's okay. It just means it's not manifesting in a way that shows the problem obviously to you. So then are you of the opinion, um, because a gluten-free diet is such a big diet nowadays, that most people, if not everyone, should be on this type of diet, um, and that regardless of whether they have a condition or not, that they will benefit from it? That's a really good question. I'm asked that all the time, and I have never answered that, saying everyone needs to go gluten-free. I will never say that. Why? Because then I position myself as a nutcase, a fanatic, <laughs> right? But I will say this. Why would we eat a food that causes intestinal permeability in everyone? Mm. Why would we do that? So that's food for thought. Uh, but the second answer is, who should be tested? If you have some concern about your health, that it's not where you want it to be, and the efforts you've made so far have not given you the result that you want, those people need to be tested. Because it can manifest in any tissue of your body, and in like a tumor in your eye. I mean, who would have thought, you know, if I had said to you without that introduction, I said, yeah, it gets rid of tumors in the eye. You would think this guy is, out, this guy's out in left field somewhere, right? But it does. And there are a number of cases of reversing cancers, uh, reversing autoimmune diseases across the board, across the board. And obviously, if you have a tumor in the eye, you need to take care of it. You don't just, oh, go gluten-free and see if that does it. I mean, don't do that. What's the matter with you, mm. right? But the point is, if there is something you're addressing in your health, if your body's not working the way you want it to, those are the people who should be comprehensively tested just to rule out that the most common source of gasoline on the fire is not occurring for you. Mm -hmm. And then for those, because we do have a lot of listeners who are just prevention-minded and they just want to make sure that they're doing the best they can to prevent disease um, in the future, 
you know, for those people, would you say go ahead and go gluten-free or, you know, what, what would you suggest? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Um, it's good to do that, but you have to do it wisely. Um, there is no need in the human uh, nutrition for wheat. There is no need. Uh, mm. But people who go gluten-free, here's a pearl for you folks, is that when you go gluten-free, you alter your microbiome. Uh, that's the good bacteria in the gut. And that's a critical, critical, maybe the number one area of the body that we all should be addressing is to make sure we have a healthy microbiome. But if you've been eating wheat uh, for years and years, your body has become dependent on wheat as the primary, for most of us, source of your prebiotics. The prebiotics feed the probiotics. And if you discontinue the primary source of your prebiotics, you can have a whole lot of bad guys that start developing in your gut. So you want a comprehensive education program on how do I go gluten-free in a healthy way. Mm. Interesting. Okay. So can you elaborate more on that? How do I go gluten-free in a healthy way so that I don't imbalance my, my microbiome? Yeah. Um, uh, well, what we recommend and what I've trained all of our practitioners on is the importance of evaluation of the microbiome. What do you currently have going on in there? Mm. Uh, but uh, aside from that, a little pearl for your listeners, um, put five or six different types of fermented vegetables in your refrigerator. Go to Whole Foods and always non-pasteurized fermented vegetables, and they have a curry flavor, they've got a Thai spice flavor, they've got an Italian flavor, there's sauerkraut, there's kimchi, uh, miso. Uh, you get these different fermented vegetables, and every day you take one forkful of a different family of fermented vegetables, just a forkful. Mm. You don't need to do a lot. And for those that take a fork, forkful and you get bloating or gas, then you start with just a teaspoon or a half a teaspoon of the juice from the sauerkraut and just do a little juice. You don't like the taste, put in your salad dressing. Mm. You'll still get in there and get the job done in your gut. You don't have to taste it if you don't want to, but you start small and just gradually build up and over the course of, and if you have to start with a teaspoon of just the juice because your gut's so out of balance that you little sauerkraut, you're all bloated and gassy, you got bad gas for two days, then you just start with a little bit, maybe a half a teaspoon of the juice. It'll take you a year, a year to two years. And then you'll be just doing a forkful every day of different types of fermented vegetables. And you feel like a million bucks. You're stronger than you've been in a long time. Sure. The gut, the uh, microbiome in the gut is the most important organ that you could work on. Most mm. important. Absolutely. So then I guess for our listeners who maybe are thinking of a gluten-free diet, you're suggesting just um, broaden the range of fermented foods that they're eating and slowly reintroduce them, micro doses, and then increasing the doses until they don't get bloated or gassy and they start feeling better from, from the variety of fermented foods that they're eating. That's right. Now, for, some, for most of the listeners, they'll think, well, if I have a fork full of sauerkraut every three days, I'm doing fine. No. <laughs> how many days a week or how many times a day do you eat wheat? You get a bagel for breakfast, you get a blueberry muffin with your coffee, a sandwich for lunch, pasta for dinner, croutons on the salad, you maybe have a cookie. So three, four or five times a day, you're being exposed to wheat. 
you have to expose yourself to more prebiotics and more of the uh, uh, vegetables, the fiber from vegetables. You have to create a healthy environment in your gut. One of the good fats in the gut, they're called short chain fatty acids. The, I'm not sure it's the most important one. I don't know if there is a most important one. They're all important. Mm -hmm. But a commonly known one is called butyrate or butyric acid. Remember I said the fastest growing cells in the body are the inside lining of the intestines every three to seven days. What, the fuel that those cells use to make a new cell is butyrate. So you got to have a lot of butyrate around because if you don't have enough butyrate, you make your house out of straw instead of out of brick. And what does that mean? Well, if you have low butyrate levels, there's a much higher risk of colon cancer. There are many studies on that. Just go to, just go to Google and type in butyrate, B-U-T-Y-R-A-T-E, and colon cancer. Boom, there they are. Whoa, when you see that. Well, how does your body get more butyrate? It's by the action of the good bacteria on vegetable fiber, mm -hmm. on the insoluble parts of vegetables called insoluble fiber. So you've got to have lots of vegetables, um, a pound a day for adults, about a pound a day, five different colors. You always want different colors because different colors have different families of anti antioxidants and flavonoids in them that will feed different bacteria in your gut. So five different colors, about a pound a day for adults. What does that mean? It means when, if you're going, see I travel a lot to teach, so I eat, unfortunately, in a lot of hotel restaurants, right? And it's not the highest quality food, so you do the best you can there. So in the morning, I go down for breakfast, and they've got the buffet lines, which is the eggs are liquid eggs that they make scrambled eggs out of and all that. So I will ask the waiter, please ask the chef to saute a bunch of vegetables for me, a whole plate of as many vegetables as he can find with some olive oil and a little garlic, please. And then I'll have a couple of eggs over hard, cook the yolk. So that's my breakfast in hotels. And so you get your vegetables wherever you can, as often as you can, to help feed the good bacteria in your gut. Hmm. Since you're on the topic, I think a lot of our listeners, what they want to know is like the practical aspect of implementing such a lifestyle, right? So, so breakfast, if you're traveling, you gave us an example. What is an example of lunch and then dinner while you're traveling or just kind of on a busy schedule? Yeah, lunches are usually much easier because most restaurants, if you're going to restaurants, most restaurants have salads on their lunch uh, menu. So um, you can get a salad. I often ask for, hi, can I have a large plate mixed field greens? I said, first I'll say, do you have field greens or just head lettuce, right? And no, no, we, we've got greens. Oh, great, great. Give me a large plate of field greens um, uh, with some vegetables in it. What kind of vegetables do you, do you usually put in your salads? And they'll tell me, oh, good, I'll have this, 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 and this. And ask a chef to um, uh, uh, put a piece of fish on it or a piece of chicken. Let's, um, let's uh, uh, broil uh, or uh, whatever chicken you have on the menu, if it's grilled, I'll have a piece of chicken or a piece of fish um, on the salad. It's an easy one to do. And for me personally, I'll say, ask them to throw some capers on there because I like, I like capers. Mm. Right? And dinners are much easier too. You just want to focus on quality proteins and lots of vegetables. Don't eat the dinner rolls. I mean, really. I'll, I'll just, 
But yeah, do not eat the dinner rolls. <laughs> the take-home point of this conversation. Right. So, you know, people um, also wonder, okay, you know, if they're traveling overseas or, um, you know, say like they're in Italy and they really want to try the pasta, is it true that um, gluten is different, you know, in different parts of the world? And then also, uh, what about ancient grains? Can people eat ancient grains um, and, and be okay? Good questions. If your body has made antibodies to any of the clumps of the pearl necklace uh, for gluten, then you cannot eat wheat. Ancient grains does not matter. They still have those amino acid complexes that your immune system is now primed to fight. The reason that many people go to Europe and they say they can eat the wheat and they don't have any symptoms those are people who back home, when they ate the wheat, they had gut symptoms, they had bloating, they had gas, they had abdominal pains. And they don't get the bloating or gas or abdominal pains in Europe, so they think they're fine. Well, what we now know is that for the vast majority of people, it's not the protein in wheat that causes the bloating and gas and abdominal pain. It's a category of carbohydrates in wheat called FODMAPs, F-O-D-M-A-P-S. And the FODMAP content of the wheat in Europe is lower than in the U.S. So you don't get the bloating or the gas or the abdominal pains, and you get the misconception that it's okay for you. It's because you don't get those symptoms. But what you do get is the activated immune response so you get the elevated antibodies to your cerebellum or to your thyroid or to your joints or wherever the weak link is in your chain. So you will set yourself back quite a bit if you go to Europe and have the wheat over there thinking it's okay because you don't have any bloating, gas, or abdominal pains. Hmm. As far as... Sorry. Very yeah. sorry to tell you that. <laughs> well, you know, that that's the truth, right? So as far as... Um, you know, accidental exposure or the occasional gluten exposure. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know, is it okay for those, you know, accidental exposures or if you're just really craving gluten or is it kind of like an all or nothing kind of thing? Well, that's um, two separate questions. One is the accidental, uh, the unexplained or unintentional exposures. And then there's the occasional lapse. Mm. So if you get a vaccination, for measles. They give you a shot of the bug measles. It's the bug. It's mm. been killed, but it's the bug. Your brain says, whoa, what's this? This is not good for me. I better fight this. And your brain says, general, in your immune system, you have Army, Air Force, Marine Corps generals sitting around with nothing to do. You general, you now are general measles. Take care of this. General measles builds an assembly line. The assembly line takes months to do it. The assembly line starts producing soldiers called antibodies. The antibodies are trained as assassins to go out in the bloodstream and just look for measles. They've got a high-powered rifle, and they fire these chemical bullets looking for measles wherever they go. General measles is watching this, and when all the measles bugs from the initial vaccination are gone, general measles says, okay, turn off the assembly line. We don't need any more soldiers out here right now. So you should not have any measles antibodies in your bloodstream right now unless you've been exposed, and then you should, right? Mm -hmm. But for most of us, there shouldn't be any measles antibodies. 
But General Measles is vigilant the rest of his life. If you're ever exposed to measles, General Measles just has to flip the switch. He doesn't have to build the assembly line. That's why if you go to Africa, you need vaccinations for uh, dengue fever, yellow fever, all these strange Zika, all these strange diseases. There's no vaccination for Zika yet, but there will be. You need these vaccinations months and months before you go. So there's enough time to build up some immunity to exposures. But if you go back to Africa 15 years later, you just need a booster shot two weeks before you go. Have you heard of booster shots? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because you just have to wake up general yellow fever or general dengue fever. You just got to wake them up. And then within two weeks, you've got the antibodies. Mm-hmm. The only food that's been, and by the way, general measles is called a memory B cell, a memory B cell. The only food that we know clearly produces memory B cells when your immune system starts fighting that food is gluten. Not eggs, not soy, not dairy, gluten. It's the only one. So if you have elevated antibodies to any of the clumps of the pearl necklace, when you get a comprehensive blood test done, you've got a memory B cell to gluten. And that means for the rest of your life, that general is going to be vigilant to turn on the assembly line. And when the assembly line turns on, if you have that occasional piece of birthday cake or what, whatever it is, you don't feel it. You just get elevated antibodies to your cerebellum or elevated antibodies to your myelin. That's the saran wrap around your nerves that causes MS. Or elevated antibodies to your gut and you get Crohn's disease. It just depends on where your weak link is and you don't feel it when that assembly line has been turned back on again. So the only way it's possible to eat wheat again and have it be safe for you, well, there's two things, but the first one is you get a blood test, you got a problem, you go completely gluten-free for six months, you get a blood test again, the antibodies are gone, Okay, can I eat wheat now? Well, it's not very likely, but if you want to try, go ahead and just have to check the blood again to see, has your immune system kicked up again? So then you go out and eat wheat, then you wait a month and you get a blood test again because it tastes, you have to turn the assembly line on and you got to get the soldiers out there, so you wait about a month. And if the antibodies have gone back up, you know that, oh, really, I just had that one pizza, really? Sorry, man, that's how it is. because your body never forgets, it never forgets. So if you don't, see the goal here, the goal here is to reduce the period of disability at the end of life, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't wanna be getting older when you hit 50, and then at 55 you're older, and at 60 you're older, and 65 you're older, and at 70 you're really old, and 75 you, you can hardly walk, and you don't wanna go down that spectrum. Rather, you want to stay with a high level of function. I want to take my grandkids hiking in the Alps when I'm in my 80s. Hmm. And so to do that, you have to have a high level of function. So the period of disability before our time on the planet is done is very, very short. You know, hopefully you go to sleep one night, you don't wake up. Right? Uh, So it's just a short period of disability. Maybe you have a stroke and you're gone in two days. However, it's going to happen for each of us. But that wearing down process where the last third or the last quarter of your life 
is not very functional at all or very limited in your function. That's what we're talking about avoiding here, as, mm -hmm. is to maintain, maintain this body in a higher level of function. Uh, and in my age bracket, that's the goal. In your age bracket, that's not a, a real reality right now, you know, but um, the goal for those who want to be healthier, those who want preventive care, this is, this is the cutting edge. The primary thing is stop throwing gasoline on the fire. Sure. And don't, and don't try to rationalize it and say, well, I can do this once in a while. No, you can't. Uh, if you're going to do it, then you need to know you're compromising yourself. One exposure and anywhere from two to four months, you're going to have elevated antibodies from one exposure. The second part of your question is about inadvertent exposures. When you don't know you're getting exposed to wheat, but you do, it'll still turn on general gluten. So how do you protect yourself? And it's really a big problem. It's a huge problem right now. So there are lots of enzymes out there that help you break down gluten. The problem is that the sentries that stand guard in your intestines to protect you from gluten are called dendritic cells and memory B cells. They're just on the other side of the stomach. So when food comes out of the stomach into the small intestine, if there's anything there that shouldn't be there, the sentries are standing guard right there. And they activate the immune system. It's called the inflammatory cascade. They activate the inflammatory cascade. Whoa, look what's here. We got to fight this. That's right inside the beginning of the small intestine. And it takes about a couple of hours for food to get there. All of the digestive enzymes on the market that help digest gluten take three to six hours. Mm. It's too late. It's too late. So I knew this for years and I kept talking to and researching this. What can we do? What can we do? And I found a couple of scientists two years ago, three years ago now, three years ago, they had been working on this one guy for five years, one guy for six years. So 13 years between the three of us of looking into this, and we came up with digestive enzymes that work within 90 minutes, 60 to 90 minutes to digest 99% of all gluten that you might be inadvertently exposed to. It's called GI Shield, GI Shield. And you, you'll find it, you can see it on my website and other places, and it works. It really works to protect you from those inadvertent exposures to gluten. Or if you're gonna go out and eat something and you really shouldn't, but you're gonna do it anyway, well, take a couple of GI Shield. It's going to help. I don't think it's going to shut down that whole inflammatory cascade, but it's going to help. <laughs> but I wouldn't say it's a free pass necessarily to go, go gluten crazy. <laughs> no, right. It is not a pass to go gluten crazy. No, it's not. Sure. Um, so, you know, I know we have maybe a few more minutes because I, I really have so many more questions, but I, I want to respect your time. Um, I had a listener ask about specifically gluten and its impact on ADHD. So have you had any experience with patients who, you know, once they withdrew gluten, they had um, an impact on their behavior, their functioning um, as it relates to ADHD? Quite a bit. Quite a bit. As a matter of fact, in the Journal of Attention Disorders, they took 132 kids that had a sensitivity to gluten and they put them on a gluten-free diet and they said every child or their parents showed significant improvement. That's their language. You gotta understand these are geeks. These are not English majors, right? These are geeks. And when they say significant improvement, they mean 
significant. They mean OMG improvement, mm. right? Mm. In all 12 markers of attention deficit, fails to pay attention, interrupts frequently, blurts out answers, can't sit still. Every marker, every attention deficit marker in every child improved within six months. If that were a drug, mm-hmm. after that research paper had been published, it would have been on the front page of every paper in the world. And many school districts would mandate, you gotta take this drug, your child's gotta take this drug because they're interrupting in class all the time. But it's a food to avoid, and there's no profit in avoiding the food. So there's no one that is carrying the message out for this critical study that had jaw-dropping results that no one's ever heard about the study. At the end of the study, they said, we have no hesitation in recommending that every child diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder just be checked for sensitivity to gluten because it is so commonly the cause of the attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They didn't say every time it's the cause, but they said it's so commonly the cause and you get significant improvement in all 12 markers of attention deficit. Mm, Awesome. So this question comes up a lot, and I've had other guests um, address it, but I think it will come uh, be better received coming from you. So as far as, you know, gluten-free, quote-unquote, gluten-free products, um, you know, cookies, breads, etc. What are your thoughts on those types of foods when someone is going on a gluten-free diet? You don't need to hit home runs to win the game. Most, most times if the team just keeps going for home runs, they don't win the game. You're all, uh, you're all going to cheat <laughs> in terms of eating sweets mm. and, and you're going to do gluten-free sweets. You just don't do them too often. You know, you, you can't, oh, like blueberry muffins. Oh, they're gluten-free. Oh, Starbucks has gluten-free blueberry muffins. I, I can have it now. It's healthy for me. As a matter of fact, I can have two. <laughs> it's healthy. No, it's not healthy. It's just not poisonous to you, but it's not healthy. Gluten-free products in general and most commonly are made, they're, they're nutrient-poor. They're not enriched. Like wheat products are enriched in a couple of vitamins, not much, but a little bit. But gluten-free products are not. The fillers they use, there's gums that they use, a lot of gums. It's not healthy food for you. Now, to have gluten-free pasta once in a while is just white paste. But, you know, as a culture, we like pasta once in a while. So who cares if you have a little gluten-free pasta once a week or once every two weeks? Who cares? Just make sure that most of the grains, if you're eating grains, are quinoa or amaranth or things like that. And take your uh, GI shield when you eat quinoa. You have to because of the contamination. And if you have a gluten-free sweet, make sure to take your GI shield because it's going to protect you because lots of those products are cross-contaminated. The FDA did a study in 2013. They looked at 285 foods that were labeled gluten-free. And 97.3% of them were actually gluten-free. That didn't didn't mean they were healthy uh, ingredients, but they were gluten-free. It's not bad unless you're one of the celiacs that gets 3% 
of the food that's not gluten-free, then you're, you're toast for a few months. You know, you suffer for a while. That FDA study then looked at foods that were naturally gluten-free, but not labeled gluten-free, like rice pasta. And you look at the label, it's rice, salt, and water. Or a uh, snack bar um, at one of the coffee shops. And it doesn't say gluten-free, but you read the label, and there's no wheat in there. There's no wheat flavorings or sugars like barley malt or anything like that in there. It's naturally gluten-free. 24.7% of those naturally gluten-free products had toxic levels of gluten. Mm. One out of four. That means you're not safe eating gluten-free foods. You're just not safe. You know, the industry is trying, but most of them try, but not all of them. Some of them don't really care. They buy oats that are cross-contaminated with toxic gluten. Why? Because the field that the oats grew in, they grew wheat in that field two years ago, and there's still some strands of wheat that grow up with the oats. Mm. And when they harvest it, it's just mixed in there, and it gets into the oatmeal. Mm. So you get cross-contamination. Or the trucks that they haul the grains from the fields to the manufacturing facility hauled wheat last week. They don't clean the trucks. So the oats are contaminated. The quinoa can be contaminated. Um, uh, the millet can be contaminated. So uh, you want to take the digestive enzymes to protect you. I really think it's going to make a big difference in people's lives to do that. It's unfortunate, but you, you, know, you have to do it to be safe. So for those of you that are going to have gluten-free products every once in a while, there's nothing wrong with having a cookie once in a while or a blueberry muffin. It's gluten-free. Nothing wrong with that. But you just don't make it a daily habit trying to rationalize in your mind that it's healthy for you. Mm. It's not healthy for you. It's paste. It's just paste. But you, you don't have to be perfect. Perfect. Yeah, it's just, okay, you've covered so much information, and you know I think you break down things in a really easy-to-understand way, so that's why I love hearing from you. Um, you know, one of the things I love is that you have also something that people can you know, um, get if they want more information. And it, you know, it's some of the best interviews with uh, leading experts in the field, covering some of the questions that we've already talked about, but probably in more detail about, you know, ancient grains, etc. cetera. Um, do you want to share where they can get this, this uh, pack of information if they want? Oh, thank you. Yes, thank you. I don't really have that memorized. Let me look at this <laughs> thing and tell you, okay, because I, I don't really follow this too much. So, okay. Yeah, it's called the Gluten Truth Discovery Pack. And uh, there, oh, 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 this is great. It's got the Power Hour in it. And in the Power Hour, it was my interview with Dr. Jeffrey Bland, the father of functional medicine, and Dr. Deanna Minnick, who is just a wonderful PhD specialist in holistic healthcare. And we talked about gluten sensitivity without celiac disease. And we talked about some of the studies. And there will be no question in your mind after that you will know for sure that this thing is real and for some people it is the reason why they are having the confusing health problems that they're having also my three favorite articles are going to be in there uh, uh, the one that I mentioned to you uh, the conundrum of gluten sensitivity why the tests are often wrong and uh, uh, the one there's an article from Harvard on the different ways that gluten may manifest and I don't remember what the third one is. I'm sorry, I don't remember, but you'll be surprised. Uh, they're, they're really great articles. They give you more information and 
you pull out quite a few OMGs from it. Um, and the last thing is a $10 cash coupon to use if you want to try the enzymes or any other product that's on our market. And to get all of this, it's all free to you guys. To get all of it, you go to thedr.com, thedoctor.com forward slash gluten truth. Gluten truth, T-R-U-T-H. And those are all there for you so that you can get more information, take information to your doctors, listen to the godfather of functional medicine talk about this topic of gluten sensitivity and celiac disease. And they're all there for you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Dr. Tomlin. I'll definitely be linking those up in the show notes for the episode. Um, I think that's really generous for you to offer, you know, pretty much a, a sample of your, your enzymes for people who are interested and who are listening. Um, I think that's a great, great benefit. And um, it's such, it's been such a pleasure ch chatting with you. I, I love how you explain things because like I said, it's just so easy to wrap your head around when you're, when you're explaining things. Um, so thank you so much for your time. And um, you know, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Hey, so I hope you enjoyed this show. All the links and resources mentioned today are in the show notes at drann.com, spelled A-N-H as in healthy. And while you're there, remember to hop on the Food as Medicine VIP email list and you'll get my free gift. It's the Clean Eating Rules and it's everything that I learned about nutrition when I was on my bodybuilding journey, which happens to be contrary to many of the things I learned in school. And it's really my number one guide from my experience for how to eat to lose weight, improve your biometrics, and get more energy. You'll also get all my favorite pearls from the show. And this show can be a bit technical at times with lots of details about what foods to eat, what foods to avoid, as well as what supplements to take and in what dosages, etc. So if you're anything like me, you're probably listening to this while driving, cooking, running some errands around the house, walking the dog, etc. And you really aren't in a position to be jotting down notes of all the great information that's shared by the guest. So I've taken all the notes for you. And by hopping on my email list, you'll get all the show pearls delivered right to your inbox so you can refer back to them at any time. Finally, as a VIP email subscriber, you'll get the occasional love letters from me, which are emails sharing some of my favorite recipes and products, upcoming events, new information that I've learned, and just other goodies. So go to drann.com now and enter your name and email address. Did you like this episode? Then remember to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode and leave us a review. This will really help us with the iTunes rankings and help more people find the show. Remember to tell all your friends because we need more people to hear the food as medicine message. We've got plenty of great guests coming up, so stay tuned. Thanks so much for stopping by. And until next time, remember to eat consciously because the world needs a healthy and vibrant you.